talking about mission today. And to start, I want to just tell you a little story. I grew up outside of Philadelphia in New Jersey, and as such, I was a disgruntled Philadelphia sports fan. And, I mean, as good as it got for me was the Flyers doing well in, like, the mid-'80s. That was about as good as it got until I went to Nyack College, which is the flagship school of this denomination. It's in New York, and I met a bunch of people who were Yankees fans. And, and at this point, it was 1997, and they were on their, their rise to fame of the late 90s and early 2000s. And, and I started going to baseball games with them. Now, if you remember baseball games at the Vet in Philly, it was like this miserable cylinder with, like, AstroTurf and the mound that would come up out of it. It was terrible. Yankee Stadium, however, on the other hand, is like the home that Ruth built, okay? And it just has this aura about it. So I start going to games with people, and when you approach the stadium... Up on the outside wall, I mean, you know, we've played wiffle ball in the parking lot, tailgated, walked across this bridge. There's a guy playing, you know, taking me out to the ball game on sacks. It smells like victory. You get there, and on the outside of the wall, it says, at that point, 23 world championships. Just bragging right from the outset that that we are the champions of the world, which is hilarious because baseball's so American. Anyway, um, so you go in and, and... and the smells and the sounds, and you see the, the, the you know, the kind of a, the wall of fame where there's Ruth and DiMaggio and Mantle, and you could just can imagine what it was like to be there in that heyday. And then, you know, they went on from there to win four more World Series, 27 all-time. So I'm now a Yankees fan, uh, as well as a Phillies fan, because of being, you know, in, immersed in that environment. But here's, here's where I'm going with this. The environment was one of victory. It was one of, of history. Of, of remembering these, these greats of the team and remembering the, the, the funny guys from the team, Yogi Berra, you know, just the, the hilariousness of the team and, and, and that, that bragging of 23 world championships on the outside of the stadium and just remembering everything that had been accomplished there. And, and it was expected, it was practiced for, it was leaned into, it was hired for, Steinbrenner was, you know, after it, you know what I mean? Like, it was just all about victory. And, and I want to... My suggestion to us today is that, that as a church, the capital C church, okay, our mission is to live in the victory of Jesus, to, to proclaim his victory in all that we do, that it should be emblazoned on our lives, on our hearts, and, and this isn't about you know, what we achieve. This isn't about becoming a bigger church. This isn't about adding numbers, raising the budget. This isn't about conversions, like so many of us were taught for so long in the church that we better go out and get people saved. I love what you said, Megan, that we're called to be faithful, not successful. Faithful to what? Proclaiming the victory of Jesus. And that it should be across all that we do, and it should just come out of all that we are in our lives. And, and for us to be on mission as a church, right, I'll boil it down to this. For us to be on mission is to be sent. Jesus says in the end of John, John chapter 20, uh, verse 21, he says, As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And when you look at what that means, you see that he was sending us to do what he did, short of death on a cross and resurrection. Though we have the power of the resurrection inside of us through his spirit. And in short, our mission, like I said, is not about what we accomplish or who we convert, but about being Jesus, being him, letting him live through us in, in word and in deed in all that we do. 
proclaiming him as king. Like I love that those songs talked about proclaiming Jesus as Lord and in a heart of serving the people around us. That only Jesus is the answer to the world's problems, to all of humanity's brokenness. Proclaiming Jesus as God's victory over brokenness, over sin, over death, over the grave, over our addictions, over our broken marriages, over all of our pain, all of our sin, all of that, and ultimately over death. And just living that out day in and day out. But to understand how we are sent as sent ones, we need to look at how Jesus was sent. So this is where I'm going to start like, just flying through passages and through some background here on, on who Israel is, who Jesus is, so that we can land on what it looks like for him to be sent. So just if you want to take notes, great. There's not really much to take right now. So just listen. You've got to go all the way back to the beginning to understand where Jesus came from. All right? So we go all the way back to Adam and Eve, back to original creation. We see that God united heaven and earth. Okay, remember this concept. God united heaven and earth. His presence was there with his people. And God was with them and they were with him. But when they sin, we, we know this story, we talk about it often, when they sin, that heaven and earth was broken. And they were removed from God's presence. Remember, and God put a guard up around the Garden of Eden and said, this is not going to be the same now. And humanity, I would argue, ever since then, has been trying to reclaim that relationship, to reclaim that heaven and earth unitedness, that union. So, but God, too, is also after this union. He doesn't allow it to just remain broken. He says, I'm going to help rebuild this. So he, he starts leaning into a guy named Noah, remember? And Noah is the only righteous one left who's pursuing God. And, and God floods the earth. And, and so many people, because of their unrighteousness and their lack of connection to God, perish. But Noah and his family survive. And God says, I'm going to rebuild humanity through this righteous family. And then what happens? Shortly after that, Noah sins, and his son sins, and it, it all goes to crap again, right? And, and so then God says, okay, and he allows a little bit more time to go on, and he brings about this man named Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And they have this critical relationship. And, and God, what God, is very interesting here, what God says is, it says, I am going to multiply you. Remember with Adam and Eve, he said, you multiply You go and do this. But he says to Abraham, I am going to do this now. I am going to do something special in you that the world has not seen. I am going to help reunite heaven and earth through you and through your family. So Abraham starts starts this family through a miracle we don't have time to get into, and then these sons come along, and and his his family starts growing and becoming like the sands on the seashore, remember God said it would be. And, and then so eventually there's this famine in the land and they end up in Egypt looking for food. So this great family, this, this nation of Israel that's being birthed, ends up in, in Egypt and they're slaves. And they're waiting to be set free. And they're relying on these promises from God saying, we were waiting for you to do this. We were waiting for you to make this union with heaven and earth. And, and what happened? And have you forgotten about us? And God sends a man named Moses. And Moses comes and he frees the people through God's power, by the Spirit. He frees the people and they're now moving out of exile through the exodus into and towards the promised land that God had promised years, 400 years earlier to Abraham. And this fascinating thing happens. If you remember this in the story, it's amazing. Do you remember how heaven and earth start to be united again? This this cloud starts to show up during the day. 
And God is leading his people, and he's protecting the people of Israel as they go through the desert. They don't know where they're going. They don't know how to be out in the desert like this. They've only ever lived in Egypt. So he's protecting them by day. And then this cloud of fire, this pillar of fire comes at night. It's God's presence with his people again. He's starting to work through the people of Israel to bring his presence to earth. And then the story gets even crazier in my mind. He says, I want you to build a tabernacle. I want you to build a place where you are going to, to keep some of the sacred relics, okay? these, these, these artifacts that the, the living word of God put into to rock in the form of the Ten Commandments, Aaron's staff, these other things start being put into the Ark of the Covenant, it's called. And, and God says, my presence is going to dwell on earth in the tabernacle. So he's, he's taking everything that was broken with Adam and Eve and he's reuniting it, heaven and earth, in the tabernacle. And he brings his presence there. And, and it's amazing. It, it says that when Moses would be near God, his face would glow and people would see it and they would know that he had been there. And so his radiance starts to fill this kind of shabby but fancy tent, as it were. So Israel is worshiping God here and heaven and earth are being reunited around a tabernacle. And, and what's supposed to start happening here is that they were going to be a light to the Gentiles that the world would start to come and worship God because of what they were seeing in Israel. And they would be astounded by God's presence and they would come and worship him and they could be adopted into the family if Israel had been open to this. And we know that a little bit of time goes by and then what happens? Israel says, we want a king. We want to be like everybody else. We, we, don't, we don't like just this whole God's presence thing. We want an actual king. And Samuel says, you don't want that. And they say, no, yes, we do. So he gives them King Saul. And King Saul goes absolutely bananas and walks away from God. And God puts David on the throne. And David says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get rid of this shabby tabernacle and moving the ark from place to place and hiding it in these weird towns. And we're going to make a house for God. We're going to make this ornate place where the heaven and earth union can happen and God's presence can be there. And God says, not you, David. Because of the blood that's on your hands, not you. But your son is going to do this. So he picks Solomon. And Solomon builds this incredible temple. It was one of the most beautiful places the world had ever seen, covered with gold and jewels and fancy wood and architecture. And it's this beautiful place, all to house God's glory, God's presence on earth for the people of Israel and for the light to be a light to the Gentiles. It says in 2 Kings 8 that that God's presence so filled the temple that the priests couldn't even go in. It was so astounding, so overwhelming. I mean, picture this. This is God's presence on earth. And so he's reuniting what was lost through Adam and Eve's sin and through their idolatry. So God's presence is in this temple, but we know that what happens from there is these kings who are supposed to represent God to the people start going astray. And one king after another, one king would be good and worship God, and the other one would walk away and he'd worship idols. And then there'd be a good king and then a bad king, and back and forth and back and forth. Till eventually, God allows the people of Israel, and now it's a split nation at this point, Israel and Judah, he allows them to be taken away. He allows Israel to be taken into captivity. He allows Judah to be taken into captivity by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians. And God's temple is destroyed and his presence leaves. His physical presence, this manifest presence of God, this cloud, this fire, it leaves the temple. And the people are carted off in desperation and in exile. And they they realize that it's gone. 
The heaven and earth union is gone now. What are we going to do? And for years, they, they wait in desperation, in sadness, in grief. Do you know, I'll skip parts of this story, but did you get to, this is why the Western Wall, this is why it's a place of, of mourning and weeping and sadness, because they know that God's presence has not returned to the temple. But if you go back to Israel being in exile, they're waiting and they're waiting and prophets like Daniel come along and say, it's going to be 400 years, again, 490 years before God's presence comes back. And there's a bunch of different prophets and I'm going to blaze through these, but if, if you want, just read Isaiah, okay? Just, just read Isaiah and look for all of the prophecies about, the gods, about God coming back to earth, about God's presence coming to be with the people. Starting in Isaiah 4, I'll just read a couple of these. He says this, in that day, all right, these people are waiting for God's presence to come back, waiting for the heaven and earth union. Isaiah says, in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy, all who were recorded among the living in Jerusalem. Listen to this. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem. Listen to this. By a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. He's going to cleanse them by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. Over all the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. Isaiah is prophesying to the people that a day is coming when God's presence will be reunited with the people and they will be, be protected. But first will come judgment of spirit and fire. Look at Isaiah 61. It's another famous passage which, again, the first one should have resonated with you if you've been in scriptures for any length of time. Isaiah 61, you'll definitely recognize this. Isaiah speaking to the people, and he's talking about himself here. And he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Imagine how brokenhearted they were in exile. To proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. He's saying, folks, I am here to proclaim good news to you that the day of the Lord is coming, that you will be set free, that your eyes will be open, that God's presence will come and be with you once more. Look at Isaiah 55. You can write these down. You can go back and read them later if you want. This, I, this is where I want to start to really hone in on this. Isaiah 55, he's prophesying to the people, and he says, Come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And he's saying, this day is going to come when, when water comes to you. You parched and, and exiled people. God will come and he will pour water into you. And it will be a day of sustenance and, and he will supply all of your needs, starting with thirst. He will come and give you water. There's this famous passage in Ezekiel, where Ezekiel is another prophet, and he's speaking to the exiles, saying, what's going to happen when God comes back? And he's telling them what to look for, and, and he has this vision. 
this dream, and I won't read it, but I'll just pick out a couple of things. In Isaiah 47, this is a fascinating passage. If you want to go home and read this later, you can mark it down. Isaiah 47. He says there's this man, this angel, that's leading him around and showing him things to come. And he says he goes to the temple, and and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. So again, there's this theme of water that's going to come. Right, this, this living water that's going to come. And he says, and he, he goes out, and the water was ankle deep. It's flowing out from the altar, and it's ankle deep. And he keeps walking, and then it's, he says that it's, it's up to his knees. Then it's up to his waist. Then it's a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in. It's this overwhelming flood that's going to come out from the temple. This flood of cleansing and refreshing water that's going to come from the temple, figuratively, deep enough to swim in. If you read on in the rest of this chapter, it says that it didn't just stop there, it flowed from there. And if you've ever been to to the Jordan Valley, you've seen any of these empty streams in the desert, what happens is they all start flowing together when it rains, and they end in the Jordan River, which ends in the Dead Sea. It all goes in there, and it just dies. So it's great that this desert goes from being totally dry to being a place where the Dead Sea collects water. I mean, it's really not a special place anymore, okay? And, And so... What Ezekiel says, though, is that this water flows in there and it starts bringing it life to where there was death. And the water starts flowing out from there and he says that there starts being trees producing fruit on both sides. Again, this is figurative language to say that living water is going to flow out of the temple and bring fruit and bring sustenance. And it says it's going to be fish in the Dead Sea and it's going to be this place of God's supply for his people. So they're preaching these messages, these prophets are speaking these words into these folks that are in exile, who are saying, when is God's presence going to come back? Has he forgotten about us? What can we do to get right before him so that we can make this happen? How do we perform our religious duties to make sure that God will come back and do these things? And then last one, I know I'm loading you up on these on purpose, because I want you to see the greatness of this. Zechariah 14, Zechariah kind of sums up Isaiah And Ezekiel, look at 14.2. He says, this is God speaking, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. So the people are going to be warring against Jerusalem. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Listen to this. On that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley. He goes on to say that this is what's going to happen when the Lord comes, when all his holy ones with him. On that day there will be no light, no cold or frost. It will be a unique day without daytime or nighttime. A day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. So the light comes in the evening. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea, which is the Mediterranean and Dead Sea. In summer and in winter, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only Name. What a beautiful name 
It is. This is what Zechariah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and all the other prophets are proclaiming to the people of Israel, that heaven and earth are going to be reunited, that God's presence is going to come back, and that he will be king not just over Israel, but over the whole earth. And out of his temple will flow living water to the people that will provide sustenance for them, spiritually, spiritually filling them with living water, providing for their every need. Now, Imagine you are a first century Jewish man. Imagine you're a first century Jewish woman. You know, you're a man and, you, and your, your dad has a fishing business or whatever it is and, and you go out day in and day in. You know, you're, you're, you're a mom and you have kids running around and you're trying to go to the market and buy things and provide for your family and, you know, trying to be this upright woman and, and, and you know that you live under Roman occupation where you are taken advantage of, pushed down, beaten, taken advantage, you know, money taken from you by your own people, the tax collectors. You know that every year at Hanukkah you celebrate and wait for the light to come back to the temple. You know that the temple has been rebuilt, but the priests will readily admit that God's presence hasn't come back. So it's this emptiness. You celebrate the Maccabean Revolution at Hanukkah every year, remembering that these guys had gone into the temple and tried to cleanse it to get rid of these pagan dictators so that God would come back, try to make a place for him, and God didn't come back. So you wait, and you wait, and you wait, being beaten down, going out every day to fish with the family business, taking care of screaming kids, You know that your religious leaders who are supposed to love you and care for you and lead you into God's presence have been co-opted by politics. Sound familiar, church? They've been co-opted by politics and they're linking up with this party or that party trying to regain control of the government, trying to control the people, trying to make sure the temple was controlled, and yet God's presence still doesn't come back. And you just wait. And you're promised over and over again that, that someday this living water will come. That someday this this manifest presence of God, the cloud, the fire, his glory will come and rest in the temple again. But when? When? So you wait. It's into that environment that Jesus was sent. It's into that world, that world devoid of God's presence, that heaven and earth have been disunited, they're no longer together, people waiting for God's presence to come, being abused, harassed, their their religious leaders and now politicians and everything is jacked up and they're waiting for something to come and rescue them. That is who they expected the Messiah to be. And it's into that world that Jesus is sent. So now I want you to think about some things with me. Remember at Jesus' baptism, I think it's, I wrote it down, I think it's Matthew 3. Yeah, it's Matthew 3 where it's referenced. Jesus is baptized, and and John the Baptist says this about him. He says, I baptize with water to cleanse you. But when he comes, he will baptize you with spirit and with fire. There's this cleansing judgment that's going to come. and, And ready the people for God's presence, just like was predicted by Isaiah in chapter 4. Spirit and fire will come on this Son of Man. And then if you have your Bibles, look at me at John chapter 7. 
This is one of the most formative passages on who Jesus is, I think, in, in all of Scripture. John is an incredible theologian, and he does an amazing job of, of saying who Jesus is as the Son of Man, as the Son of God. So in John chapter 7, it's during the Feast of Tabernacles, during the Feast of Booths, it's called, and it's during the, the ingathering, during the harvest, and, and what they're doing is celebrating that God is providing for them, but one of the unique parts of this celebration is that the priests every day would go and get water from this nearby stream, and they would bring it to the altar. Now, this is fascinating to me, this little sidebar item. Every day when they would do this, the sacrifice, they would pour wine over it, and there was a hole on the side of the altar where the wine would pour out. But on these days, during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would also get water. And they would bless this water, and the people had said there was so much reverie and trumpets blasting and people singing and dancing as they bring this water into the temple. And they would pour that over the altar. Wine would come out. And water would come out. I couldn't help but picture Jesus being pierced in his side on a cross as our sacrifice and blood and water being poured out. And Man, John just captures this stuff. Like He knew what he was doing when he wrote these things. So there's this water ceremony going on, and on the last and greatest day of this celebration, verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stands up and he says in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. These people have been pouring water, water over this altar for years, waiting for God to come back, waiting for his presence to come, waiting for the living water to flow out. And here Jesus, big, bad, and bold, stands up and says, I will give you living water. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Isaiah 61, 33, 55, whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow from within him. Do you see the transfer that happens? It's no longer about the temple. It's no longer about the physical altar. It's about believers becoming the temple, where the Spirit will fill them and the living water will flow through them, which we'll look at in a little bit. But notice the point that John draws out in verse 39. By this living water, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So this is John writing in reverse, saying, well, Jesus makes this proclamation that living water is going to flow through people. Well, what he was talking about was the Spirit, and the Spirit hadn't come yet. So again, it's this prophecy from Jesus that time's going to come when believers who believe in me will be filled with the Spirit, and water will flow out of them like living water prophesied by Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah. So Jesus makes this big claim of being living water. And then in John 12, in John 12, it's, it's a really interesting place. Jesus is starting to tell his disciples that his end is coming. So he's made these claims about being living water and coming to him if you're thirsty. He's made all these claims about the temple and, and all these things. And then in John 12, he says, well, I'm going to go to die. And the disciples can't figure this out, and the Greeks who were there can't figure this out. And he says, I'm going to this so that God can be glorified. So that God will be glorified, and God's voice speaks over Jesus and says, I am glorified through this. And then Jesus says something fascinating. This, to me, is one of the, the 
preeminent passages on what the gospel is. He says, I will be glorified, but now judgment is coming on the prince of this earth and he will be kicked out. Meaning, the devil himself, the enemy, Satan, whatever you want to call him, this power of evil in the world is going to be judged and removed through Jesus' glorification. So he's saying, I'm the living water. When I'm glorified, when I am raised up on the cross, and I'm glorified and God is glorified, the enemy will be removed from the earth. His power will be removed. Now we know that he still has influence, but because of the power of the Spirit, we have power over him. So Jesus is making these claims about himself. So we see that he, he says, I'm living water. The, the ruler of this world is going to be kicked out. And he says, it's, he's no longer going to be king. I am. I'm starting a new kingdom among you. And good Israelites were like, okay, is that us? Like, or is it just for Jewish people? And Paul expounds upon this over and over again. It says, this isn't just for Israel. This is now for spiritual descendants of Abraham. Which, unless you're of Jewish heritage in this room, that's us. Like, we have now been grafted into this family that the people of Israel that God was going to bring his presence through comes all the way through Jesus and spreads to us, and now we carry around his manifest presence. We carry the presence of God. The, the, the union of heaven and earth is now found in us as spiritual descendants of Abraham. Paul does a great job of laying that out. Luke says that the kingdom is, is among us. I mean, think about the Lord's Prayer. You know, God, will, will your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? That wasn't a, I hope this happens someday. He was saying it is happening. God's kingdom is not just a someday thing that we get to go to. This is what we preach every week. It's here now. We get to live in God's kingdom now. Maybe not in all of its fullness as we wait for Jesus' return, but we get to live in his power, in his kingdom, now. One of the great passages, when we look it up in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that, that in Jesus, all of God's promises are yes. All of God's promises come true in Jesus. So I take all this time to set this up. Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Moses, the people of Israel, the failed kings, God's presence, heaven and earth being united, the temple going away, the presence, waiting for it to come back, waiting for living water. It's all found to be yes in Jesus. All of those promises of God uniting heaven and earth come true in Jesus. That is why he was sent. He was sent to bring heaven to earth and bring us into that with him. So, Very quickly, three things that his death and his resurrection, his glorification bring us. Victory over sin and death. Jesus' death and resurrection brings us victory over sin and death. If you need a refresher on this, you're not sure what I mean by this, look back at our free series from the last couple months. And you see the gospel coming through over and over again of what we've been freed from, freed from sin and death. It brings us victory over religion and legalism and moralism. That this is no longer some, some thing where you need to obey all the rules so you can get it right so God's presence come. He flipped it and said, my presence comes, so obey. This isn't promises that you're trying to keep anymore. This is my promise to you. Go live in it. And it does away with the power of religion and legalism and moralism. You can look back to our Simply Jesus sermon from a couple weeks ago. 
where Adam did a phenomenal job of relaying the gospel in that way. And finally, the one that to me is, is so forgotten by the church is that Jesus is God's victory over the empire of this world. Jesus is God's victory over the empire of this world. That, that politicians do not hold any power over the Christ follower anymore. That, that money does not have to hold sway over our lives. That the lusts of our, our hearts and eyes don't have to hold power over us anymore. That, that addictions can be broken. That, that marriages can be saved. That, that people can find healthy vocation in serving the Lord and serving one. And it just goes on and on. Because the power of this world no longer exists. Because Jesus has triumphed over it through his death and resurrection. So when we talk about mission, you can't live into the mission of Jesus if you don't believe this. If you don't grasp this. If you don't really grasp that evil has been made powerless. That that the ruler of this world has been kicked out. That our thirst can be quenched. That we can become children of Abraham and on and on. That, That heaven has been brought to earth. There was a time when we were at a restaurant and we were standing in line and and we had, I think, two or three kids at that point, I forget, and we're waiting for the table, and there's that gumball machine, like the obligatory candy machine that's at every restaurant. Like, it's like, I don't know why, it's at kid eye level while you wait for dinner. Like, come on. So we're standing there, and I remember my son saying, Dad, Dad, can I have a quarter? Dad, can I have a quarter? Dad, can I? I'm like, I, like, I never have cash. Okay, I'll just tell you right now, like, I don't have cash, because if I had it, I would buy candy or coffee, or, like, it would just go away. So I'm like, I don't... I don't have anything. I can't, and, you know, and he's a kid. He doesn't grasp this. He just keeps asking, like, I'm going to magically make it appear from somewhere. And I finally, I said, I can't give you what I don't have. Like, I, look, I don't, I don't have it. And it's the same thing with following Christ. To be on mission with Christ, you can't, you can't give away something you don't have. And so often we go out in the world as Christians, we're like, I need to get people converted. Like, I, I need to make people love Jesus. And they're like, Why? because someday you go to heaven? You better repent, you're going to hell. Like, that argument doesn't work anymore, okay, church? Like, and it's a truncated gospel. We can't give away what we don't have. So if you don't grasp this, this isn't meant to be guilty. I'm saying lean into it. Be here on the weekends and listen to sermons, read scripture to try to grasp who Jesus is to us and what the freedom of the gospel is. All right, so couple minutes left, I'm going to wrap up. Jesus comes into this world and he's sent here and, and we are sent by him. He comes as a river of living water, right? We see that in John 7. But if you look at John 20, you look at John 20, 21, you can turn there if you want. This is, to me, you know, if, if you go to classic missions passages, what are they? Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Acts 1-8, there's some passages in Mark and Luke. But this to me is an overlooked passage on mission. In verse 21, Jesus says this to his disciples, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me to do all those things we just talked about, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So this is taking John 7, where, Jesus, where John says that the Spirit hadn't yet been given. It's wrapping it up, and John is saying, he breathes on the disciples, and he says, as I've been sent, I'm sending you, receive and be empowered by the Spirit to go and bring this gospel to the world around you. I'm not going to read it right now, but if you look at Luke 4, this is what Jesus was sent to do. The fulfillment of Isaiah 61 to proclaim freedom for the captives. To give sight to the blind, which I think is both spiritual and physical. Church, I think we have the ability through the Holy Spirit to pray over people and to pray for God to do the miraculous healings. To to seek justice. Church, if, if we are not seeking justice in our community, in our world, then I don't know if we fully understand the implications of Jesus' kingdom on earth. That it is here now. It's not someday it'll come to fruition. We get to be an active part in it now. So we are called to be sent, like Jesus, to do what he did in Luke 4, which is to proclaim freedom. Not just from hell someday, but from our death, from our addictions, from our broken marriages, from all these things that we go through now, we proclaim, we proclaim freedom for people. We pray over people. We pray for our neighbors, pray for our coworkers ultimately living out the gospel that has been given to us. And then finally, Acts 1.8. We've been sent to go and be witnesses, to bear witnesses to what Jesus has done, to bear witness to his kingdom on earth. You know, Jesus is talking to the disciples right before he leaves, and he says, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea, or Jerusalem, your, you know, your, your area right around you, your sphere of influence, Judea and Samaria, the region around you. Maybe that's the whole Lehigh Valley to some of us. Maybe it's all of Pennsylvania like Megan's going into, where it's, you're going in, in beyond your hometown. And he says, I'm going to send you to the ends of the earth. You know, we support people like the Dresslers who are serving in Palestine. We supported Megan in Central Asia. Asia. If, you, if you give to the, to the offering in the back there, that, that money goes to support over 800 missionaries from our church family, you know, our denomination, around the world, because we're sending people to the ends of the earth to proclaim the gospel. So I'll say this pretty boldly. If you give, thank you. Thank you for supporting people like Megan. Thank you for supporting the Dresslers. Thank you for supporting the the Lehigh students we've been able to encourage to go out into the community around here, because we believe that part of our budget, a good part of it, should go to bearing witness beyond just these walls, beyond just our community. So thank you for supporting that. Thank you for praying for these missionaries. That's what it looks like to bear witness. And then finally, church, can I challenge you of what it looks like to go yourselves, to go and be witnesses? You know, we've been sent by Jesus. We have the Spirit of God living inside of us, and we can go and be empowered to bear witness to the gospel in the world around us, in our spheres of influence. So at the beginning of this year, we talked about this one-for-one initiative. And I know some of you have really been leaning into that and you've been praying for a neighbor, praying for a coworker to come to church. Can I encourage you to keep that up? To go and bear witness to the kingdom of Jesus in the world around you? Now here's what this has looked like for me. I don't say this to brag, I say to give you hopefully real life examples. This summer we're hosting like five barbecues at my house and we made up little invites. Tony made them, they actually looked nice, like I tried and they were terrible. But we made up these little invites and I'm just handing them out to anybody in my neighborhood I can find. I'm like attacking people out on the street. I'm like, hey, I don't know you. Come to my house. Like, it's totally weird. But what I found is that people are like, man, this is weird. But we should do this. I'm like, yes, come to the barbecue. 
I don't know what's going to happen, but my prayer is that somehow through those relationships, I'll be able to bear witness to who Jesus has been in my life and how we get to live in his kingdom. We have a neighbor who uh, comes over pretty often, and and she was having some trouble with her son because he wasn't eating. And and at a moment of vulnerability, I could not get up the boldness to be like, can I lay hands on him? Like, can I pray for him? But I just said, I'm going to pray for him tonight. I just want you to know that. And the next day, he started eating. And I'm like, man, why don't I lay hands on him? It would have been such a better demonstration of the power of the gospel. Like, but God knows, and he knows that we love this, this woman and her kid. And, you know, but, but it's little things like that that we believe, and we believe that, that Jesus came to fulfill Isaiah 61, Luke 4, we can set the captives free, that we can pray for healing. We should do that. Be bold. Be bold, church. Pray for your neighbors. I know some of you are working with refugees and caring for them, and that's bringing justice in this sphere of influence. And finally, this church, Hope Alliance Bethlehem, is is called to plant other churches in the Lehigh Valley, which is why I'm here. Uh, My wife and and, and me are not here for long. We're we're here for a couple years to gain some experience and then to go and plant a church probably in the Nazareth area. This church is going to be part of that through prayer, through sending people, through sending finances. It's another way that we live into being sent into the world around us. So thank you again for praying, for giving, for loving on us and, and helping us gain some experience here. Church, we are called to live as sent ones. That's what it means to be on mission in our daily lives, in our spheres of influence, doing what Jesus did as as aliens, as sojourners in this land that is no longer our home because our kingdom has been established in eternity with Jesus and someday we will move into it fully. But we are citizens of another country and it means that we are image bearers to bring him and show him to the world around us. Will you join me, join the other people in this church who are living as sent ones, going out and living out the power of the gospel, proclaiming the victory of God in Jesus, that his presence has been known here, that that heaven and earth have been united again in the person of Jesus and then spread to us through the power of his spirit and that it should flow out of us like living water. Church, not water that stops with us and becomes a dead sea. Water that flows out from us to the world around, cleansing, bringing the power of life, the power of healing to the world around us. May we be heaven and earth people in all that we do. Church, would you pray with me?